Welcome to Joiners, the podcast with Tim and Danny, where each week we blast off into the stratosphere and onto planet hospitality. This week we have Emma Jansen, the celebrated award-winning writer responsible for such sweet collaborations as The Way of the Cocktail and The Bartender's Manifesto. Way of the Cocktail is the collaboration with Juliet Momosai, and The Bartender's Manifesto is the book co-authored with Toby Maloney. Um, she also has written her own book on Mezcal, called Mezcal. Uh, At this point, I think it's safe to say she's a, she's a cocktail expert. She is, uh, and a great writer to boot, great editor as well, as you will hear in our interview. So without further ado, here's our episode with Emma Jansen. As a writer, you must have a preferred way for people to buy your book. I feel mm. like Amazon puts small businesses out of business. I yeah. feel like I try not to buy things on there, although it is so what easy if she was about to because say it's Amazon. so easy. Yeah. It's so easily accessible and cheap. Yeah. But like what? Uh, like I noticed uh, your Mezcal book has mm-hmm. there are three three links on your site. Which yeah. How, Honestly, how is it working with each of those, and what's the difference? Yeah, I don't think it. I mean, at least as far as I know, um, it doesn't really matter. Um, so I do, I do, I mean, encourage people to not use Amazon, but, um, Amazon is also the best price. Um, so, you know, like that's the whole conundrum, right? Like, yeah, I've bought all my books usually at city lit and it's like, I know that I'm just, I mean, yeah, you're supporting, you, you know, spend money where you want to see the business, uh, existing. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to see Amazon grow any bigger. (laughs) (laughs) Don't they have enough? Um, oh man. Yeah, no, I can get, um, I like to sell them uh, myself because then I can sign them. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I get like a 50% discount through the publisher. So okay. even then it's like, well, you could buy one from me uh, or you could get one for less money if you get it on Amazon. I mean, it won't be signed, but yeah. you know what I mean. And when you're doing, so do you pre-sign ahead of time and then you can sell those or are you doing book tour where you're talking to people as well usually um it's it's not like in the beginning like it came out in 2017 mescal did mm-hmm. um and in the beginning i had a big stack of them at home um and i'd like take them with me when i traveled and you know stuff like that and um these days there just isn't that much interest or at least not coming directly through me um so i don't have a ton of copies at home but if someone wants one signed um you know like they send me an email and i, I go out and buy one and then i yeah. sign oh, it okay. and I, and I or you could just sign yeah. all three right now boom exactly. Yeah, one, they might be signed if they came from City Lit. Some of them were already signed. Oh, good. good. Well, that's what Toby probably was not, saying. Yeah, probably not. Here, here's well, Mezcal says, to Danny, you suck. Emma. <laughs> so mean. Right? <laughs> it was just waiting on the shelf for me to pick it up. Are any of them signed? She knew that you'd no. eventually find Is it. Is Toby signed? No, these aren't. Oh, well, okay. Toby had signed a bunch that were there, I think. Yeah, Toby and I signed a lot of book plates, too, okay. back towards the launch, but... Yeah. Um, While well, you're here now, we have a actually, so. yeah. This is actually a giant gambit to get you to sign the books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, that's the end of the podcast. Hope everyone enjoyed. Yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> yeah. So, how did you get started writing? Uh, yeah. I. Um, it was kind of not on purpose, I guess. I mean, I always loved to write when I was a kid. Um, I had, you know, like stacks and stacks of notebooks of, uh, you know, whatever happened that day in school, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, but in, in school proper, um, I studied, uh, filmmaking 
cool. and so I'm really um, background in in that respect is more in like visual arts, okay. um, photography, and film. Um, I wanted to either do film editing or art direction, um, two a little bit different but kind of the same deals. Um, and I was uh, I went to school in Austin, Texas, uh, University of Texas, and um, right around the time I was graduating, the film industry there just kind of like stopped taking off. Like it was, it was definitely huh. like a hot city for that kind of thing. And that's why yeah. I had moved there for one of many reasons. Was that why. like the Linklater era kind of? Or um, is that like not... Shortly after. Okay. Yeah. Um, and basically um, Louisiana and New Mexico were doing incredible film incentives, uh, tax incentives for productions and Texas didn't want to do it. Like they passed, hmm. it was something like kind of what insulting. Was it was like 5% or something where New Mexico was doing like 40%. Um, so productions just weren't going there. Um, I don't know what the logic was. I, I feel like maybe the government just wasn't like hip to how much money that could bring in. Yeah. Hmm. It's huge in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Very friendly place to film. Yeah. I don't know what their tax, I don't know what their tax incentives are, but they must have them. Mm-hmm. If they're yeah. smart, they'll have them. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I was doing that and then the, um, there just weren't that many productions and, um, I was also kind of. Like, not loving the lifestyle either. You know, extremely long days um, when you're on a one production and then um, not really knowing if your next job is when or yeah. if. And, you know, all of that stuff. I wanted something a little bit more stable. Um, so I ended up at the newspaper. Oh, um, okay. Actually, I interned at a, an architecture magazine first. And that's oh, kind of how cool. I segued into um, working for the newspaper in Austin. And I was... Uh, an assistant to start, um, and then um, kind of segue my way into multimedia there, uh, shooting and editing videos and audio, because um, that's the cause that's where my film background like morphed into yeah. um, newspaper work, and uh, ended up on the web production desk there, in addition to that video work, and um, at the time. Uh, it's when the cocktail thing was really starting to take off in Austin. And um, we didn't really have anyone writing about it. Um, my husband and I were taking these cocktail education classes uh, as like a hobby. Um, then boyfriend, now husband. And uh, I was like, someone should write about this. Like, let me, let me give it a shot, you know? Um, ended up getting the whole beat. Um, oh, cool. cool. Beer, wine, um, spirits. What were the classes covering. like? Just kind of general information um, about each. They were great, actually. Um, the tipsy Texan, uh, <laughs> David Allen, who um, now is, um, I think, head of education at Patron Spirits, um, was doing these little um, cocktail education classes. And it was like uh, you buy uh, Dale DeGraff's book and Gary Regan's book, and uh, you'd show up every week, and there would be lessons. And it was very much like not not like showing up how to mix cocktails, but like the history, the culture, um, that whole thing. So that was definitely like my first introduction to the idea that, oh, this is more um, than about just going and drinking in bars, right? There's this whole like world to this stuff that's super cool. Yeah, that that rings true for me as well. I mean, just like getting into the whole world and seeing just how how expansive it really is. Yeah. um, Yeah, so it kind of reminds me of of the journey that I took as well. Um, so once you had the whole beat, did you know specifically the topics that you wanted to cover in, in future books? Oh, in books. I mean, I knew for years that I wanted to write a book. Um, like I knew I had that in me, um, and I didn't really have ideas. Um, 
I, uh, and I think it's partially because I was covering everything, right? It wasn't like I had an interest in cocktails, but, um, I had to write about beer and I had to write about, um, eventually when I ended up in imbibe, I had to write about coffee and tea and, um, you know, wine and like all of these other ancillary things that I didn't know as much about. Um, and so my brain was kind of always, uh, trying to hold all of these different things and, and know enough about them to be able to write about them, you know, yeah. in a smart way. Um, but not really having the time to specialize in anything. Um, so yeah, no, um, I had no idea that I, I knew I wanted to write books, but I didn't know that it was actually going to happen. I didn't even really at that point think that like being a writer was an option. You know what I mean? Even though you were writing. Yeah. Like I was writing, but, but I was also like doing the web production and doing the video stuff yeah. and like making all of these ends meet. And, uh, it, it, I don't feel like until, I don't know, the last like five years or so I, I've gotten comfortable even using the word writer. Yeah. It still almost doesn't feel real, I guess. I mean, you've earned it at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so Tim had kind of asked, uh, a question earlier outside of this podcast, uh, kind of ties into what you were discussing, um, with your like arts and media background, how much input do you have over the kind of the art direction of the books themselves? Oh yeah. That's a, that's a good question. Um, with Mezcal, um, I was fortunate enough to, um, be working with, uh, Quarto and the Voyager imprint for that one, which is, you know, it was a smaller house. Um, and so they let me do the photos of that. Um, I didn't have, like final say over much else on that one. Um, I did have a lot of input into the design, you know, when they showed me the early mock-ups and I was like, uh, actually even before then I said, you know, like, I want to make sure this doesn't look like a fiesta. Like, let's not go in mm -hmm. like a very, like, uh, let's not make this too on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm already an American writing about mezcal. Like, let's <laughs> not like, um, make it kitschy, um, or, you know, inappropriate in any way. Um, and then the, the cover, um, when that came out, I was just kind of floored. It was almost exactly how it looks now. And I don't think they could have done a better job. Like I absolutely love it. Um, they originally had a donkey there and the, uh, where the little agave flower thing yeah. is now. And that was the one thing that I really pushed hard back. I, I was like, I don't think we should have a donkey on the cover. Can we do literally anything else? Um, yeah, they're like, they how about a horse? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Thankfully they listened yeah, to mule, that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joiner's podcast is brought to you by Party Can. Party Can is a premium batched, large format, full flavored cocktail that uses high end liquor, real juice, real ingredients. It's all natural, gluten free. It's 12 drinks in a single can. And guess what? That can actually floats. You can take it to the beach, the pool, on the boat, camping, hiking, to the game, everywhere you go. It is recyclable and reusable. It's a party in a can and everyone's invited. Party Can is available at multiple retailers around Chicago, around the country, and you can always go to drinkpartycan.com to find a local store or have one shipped to you or a friend. And now, back to our interview. Um, so yeah, that was Mescal. And then, um, and how long did the whole process take from like writing it to publishing it? Yeah, that one was crazy. Um, the, my editor came to me, oh, I don't remember how many months prior, but I, I remember I signed the contract on like August 1st or something and they needed it before Christmas. Whoa, whoa. Fast. Yeah. 
Um, luckily, uh, the only reason why I said yes to it um, is because Mescal was kind of the spirit that um, I was I was most interested in. Um, it was one of the first ones that really hit my radar when I was writing for the newspaper. And I was like, oh, this is different, and there's something special here. And um, the first article I wrote that was in print was about Mescal. Um, and so from there, I kind of had kept tabs on it, yeah. right? And then I, I had written um, a story for Imbibe about bars that were um, starting to, like Mescaleria style bars in America. And that's what caught the editor's eye. And so he came to me with the idea. Oh, cool. He said, hey, I love this article. Um, do you think this could be viable as a book? Uh, and I was like, oh, my God, hell yeah. Like, that would be an incredible book. And the timing is was so good because there wasn't, that much literature out about the spirit before um 2016 um or at least not like in the way that i envisioned that it could be presented mm. um yeah so do you recall of the bars that you profiled how many of them still exist today oh that's a great question i mean i'm pretty sure um Escalaria las flores was one i know that's yeah, yeah i was starting to go in my head through the list and i'm like i wonder how many are still around yeah um Actually, Espita in Washington, D.C., I'm pretty sure, was in that story, and they just closed, um, like, this month, which is a real bummer, because mm. that was a super cool place. And was Bobby's place not open yet? Um, no, Alba? it was. It was. I'm sure that, I'm sure Pastry War was in there. Yeah, but that's anymore. not open anymore either. Yeah, so yeah. Flores, Pastry War, yeah. the other one you just mentioned. At least DC. those three were in it. Um, I think there was one, I think it may have been Barrio in, um, that's in Seattle, right? Or is it Denver? Yeah, I can find it. Anyway. We'll save it for the fact check. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, even on the cover of the book, you say that it is the ultimate artisanal spirit. What makes it so special? Mm. Yeah, um, and and that tagline, (laughs) that tagline was the the publisher thing, and uh, it's so long, and it's such a mouthful. People are like, what's the name of your book? And I honestly can't remember the whole thing most of the time. I'm like, it's just called Mezcal, (laughs) and it's it's a pretty cover. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so um, uh, Mezcal, I mean, God, there's so many things, um, I think, that make it special. Um, You know, I think... First of all, it really is, it is a, because of the way that it's made, um, which is really slowly um, when it's done in, in that like historic way. Um, it is truly like a taste of that specific time and place in which it was made, right? Because mezcal can be made all over Mexico um, with all various different kinds of agave, and each one of those has its own characteristics. And then um, each mezcal is going to be influenced by um, the way that it's being made, right? And the tools, mm-hmm. the technology, stuff like that. And so mezcal from Durango is going to taste way different than one from Oaxaca. Um, and even within you know, states and regions, um, from village to village, you're going to get a lot of, um, diverse flavors. Yeah. It reminds me of Jonathan Zaragoza talking about birria and how Mm. that can vary not just from city to city, but even door to door. Yeah. Everyone's got their own family tradition and and recipe. How many times have you been down there? Um, I've been down there a handful of times. Um, I, before pandemic, I was going down at least once a year. Um, I would like to be going down a lot more than that. Um, but you know, it's expensive and I'm a writer, (laughs) (laughs) so there's not a lot of money. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've been down to Oaxaca a couple times. I've been down to, um, uh, Jalisco a couple times, um, been down to various other parts of Mexico to kind of round it out. 
um, most recently was in Oaxaca in January okay, uh, cool. reporting for a story. Nice. For yeah. who? Um, that was actually for uh, Robert Parker. Um, it's the first time that they've um, done spirits reviews. Hmm. Um, and so this was kind of a partnership with uh, the uh, Michelin and um, the Mexican government and Robert Parker. Um, they wanted someone who um, knew spirits. Uh, and my name came up. And so um, for me, it was just kind of going down and getting reacquainted. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then I uh, wrote like a very short 101, this is what mezcal is, and then reviewed a bunch of bottles. Wow. And then really cool. when you're drinking at home, is mezcal the first thing you're reaching for? Not usually. Um, not usually. Uh, and not because, um, I mean, I do drink it often. Um, but most of the time at home, I'm really doing like the after work cocktail thing. Okay. Um, and I, and I reserve mezcal for, and I, I mean, I will have like mezcal margarita or something like that. Um, but the nice bottles I have, I kind of, I kind of want to hold on to yeah, them. Yeah, for sure. You know, especially because, um, now with so many mezcal brands on the market, um, and so many of them are just this kind of like very basic, expression of what mezcal can be right like they're mm -hmm. all like the kind of trying to be that lower price point cocktail friendly kind of thing and those just don't have as much nuances yeah, um as the sippers do what's so, your after work cocktail go-to um i drink a lot of gin tonics uh so many gin tonics <laughs> and i drink a lot of negronis um i'd say mostly gin and tequila cocktails yeah what's yeah. your tonic preference um i i don't have like a single one that I always use uh, for my birthday this year. My family bought me several cases of Fever Tree um, because I do love Fever Tree. So um, it's like the bougiest thing ever. But um, <laughs> being able to go uh, down and into the basement and be like, okay, today I'm going to have elderflower. <laughs> I'm going to pair it with this gin. Yeah. Uh, I've got the elderflower, the aromatic, the Indian and the Mediterranean. Oh, sweet. Um, and I think those are the only ones that you can get, like, by the case. So that's why I have those flavors. But um, I do love Fever Tree. And I think it's very versatile. Yeah. Um, but sometimes, you know, I've been... Historically, I haven't loved Q, but I've been revisiting it lately. Um, and I do like that in some situations. Like, if there's a gin that... Um, has a really interesting botanical profile that I don't want to mask up. Yeah. Um, I'll use the Q because it basically has no sugar in it. You know, it's it's almost like a soda. Yeah. Uh, and you throw garnishes in your G&Ts? I'm not that fancy. Okay. Um, uh, really, I'm just lazy at that point. <laughs> uh, I, will, I will think a little bit about what gin I'm putting with what tonic. But um, I also like, I like Canada Dry and Schweppes. Like yeah. there's something that is so thirst quenching. Canada Dry gets a lot of high marks you in know? the tonic roundups. Does it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't How know. do you rank your uh, tonics? What do you guys use at Scofflaw? I mean, we make our own tonic syrup yeah. and then add soda, so oh. it's not really. Uh... But I feel like when we, before we did that, we were we're either using Fever Tree or Fentimins, or we like uh -huh. tried a little bit. Uh, I don't remember exactly because it was it was a long time ago. But mm -hmm. uh, we've been making our own tonic for almost the full ten years. Wow. Um, and then we made like a different tonic for Sink Swim. And then, uh, yeah, we're actually revisiting the tonic conversation, though, and whether or not Scoffa will have, like, kind of a Spanish-style G&T as the house Fun. instead of, like, what it's been. Yeah, so I like that. So are, you, are yeah. you essentially making a syrup that you're then... Yep. Is it a syrup, it would be? Exactly. Okay. Tonic syrup and then adding soda to yeah. it. I think the Scoffa 
house tonic was one of the first house tonics that I ever had. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I yeah. guess it's not necessarily a compliment. No, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> you can take it. <laughs> uh, no, but that's cool. Yeah. Um, I like the house tonics at Billy Sunday, too. Yeah. Um, the Oxley one. Um, they keg they keg those. I yeah, think they I make really I big really... batches, keg, force carbonate. Yeah, I know they were obviously doing force carbonation yeah. since the Bachman era. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually just emailing with Jeff over there. Nice. Got to get in there soon. Got to yeah. do some stuff. Yeah. Got to push the Geneva gospel. Uh-huh. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you went from doing Mezcal mm-hmm. to then collaborating with celebrated bartenders on their, you know, cocktail books. Yeah. How did those collaborations come about? Yeah, those, um, those were, you know, looking back, like at the time that I was approached, um, for both of them, it just kind of felt like, oh, that's cool. Um, but looking back, I do feel like there was a little bit of relationship building there. Um, Julia, I had first met when she worked at Aviary and, um, I kind of just kept in touch with her over the years, you know, sourcing recipes when she was in the office. Um, yeah, I was there for a party and she was upstairs. I I think Hmm. it was, um, during one of the beard weekend parties, it was probably one of the Ford's gin something. Um, but yeah, she was at the office. I didn't, I never sat, um, in front of her at the office. I wish I had, cause I think that would have been super cool. Um, but yeah, kept in touch with her, um, would source recipes from her for imbibe, um, you know, tap her first stories. Um, and then she has a, a recipe in the mezcal book. And so uh, Clarkson Potter approached her about the Japanese cocktail book. Um, our editor there said, you know, saw this gap in the market for it um, and, and approached her. And, um, and I guess sh- she just thought of me for it. I, I don't know that there's more interesting backstory there. No, that's cool. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the, uh, the Violet Hour book um, came about Toby. Well, Toby's people reached out to me um, like a couple of months after I started working with Julia. And um, I know I was one of several candidates, um, local writers, um, who were up for that project. Um, I had, I knew they were working on a book and I like had tried to plant seeds over the years, um, you know, through the grapevine that like, I would love to do that with mm-hmm. them. Um, I met Eden, Lauren, um, one of the partners at the Violet Hour, um, at a guest bartending thing I did at Dove's that was um, related to the Mezcal release. And she kind of picked my brain a little bit about like, should we get an agent? Like, what should we do? And I remember giving her advice then. And so I'd like to think that I can trace a line back um, just to kind of like putting out those feelers a little bit and, you know, and saying, hey, I'm available for this kind of thing. And how did the processes of collaboration differ between the two? Yeah, they were night and day. (laughs) <laughs> as you can imagine right yeah. um just based on the bars alone okay. um very very different um and i and i am definitely not saying that with any kind of value judgment i loved doing both of them yeah um but they were uh completely different um so much of of co-authoring is figuring out like what that person needs from me um and then you know like finding a process that's going to, um, really help bring their stories to life. Um, so with Julia, we, uh, we're lucky that we started in August or September of 2019. Um, and so we had every Tuesday, uh, Kamiko was closed. And so I'd go, um, to the bar and, um, basically interview her for like 
seven or eight hours. Oh, uh, every Tuesday? Every How many Tuesday, Tuesdays? Um, up until things shut down. Oh my gosh. From yeah. August to March, yeah. every Tuesday, and she seven would, or eight hours of interview. Uh-huh. And she, and oh. so I'd be sitting there like typing as fast as I can, um, you know, taking notes while she's talking and really just trying to like actually take exactly what she was saying. And then you structured it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And she would, um, it's a big undertaking to like yeah. distill to use a, yeah, exactly. you're, not just, you're not just taking somebody's writing, you're taking their whole personality and trying yes. to bring that into the words. That's yeah. cool. That's a challenging process. It was, <laughs> yeah. It's just one really, really long interview is what I say. It's like, wow. um, yeah. But then did you have in your mind, like how it would be structured in the book and how like the chapters would develop and stuff like that? Julia came, um, to the table with a very clear vision on that front. She already had a table of contents, which was great. Oh, cool. Um, so I kind of had this roadmap to follow, um, which was extremely helpful. Um, did and it then, stay true to the table of contents that she came yeah, with? It really did. Wow. Um, there were some parts where we went back and forth a little bit, um, like the spirit section. Um, you know, I, that, I think that one was one we really struggled with. Um, cause I wanted to make sure that it was like, that it was intentional and that it fit with everything else, you know, and not get too deep into the actual history of each spirit. Um, cause it was really easy for us to get into those weeds. Yeah. Um, especially cause you know, a lot of the like shochu, um, I was pretty much unfamiliar with before writing the book. Um, and now I'm, you know, love it. Familiar, yeah. so cool. But what, so what's the, what's the reason to shy away from going too deep? Just for you're picturing like the audience for the book and like losing their attention when you go too deep a little so, bit. Yeah. And also, also just space. Like, is there a restriction like, on the space? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have a word count. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, wow. And when, when these book deals are um, put together, um, they're put together with the actual word count, that, word count, which translates to number of pages. Hmm. Um, I mean, but how, I mean, perhaps I'm a dumb question, but how much different is printing 250 pages versus 260 pages. Well, that's one of my biggest pet peeves mm-hmm. of the whole thing. Yeah, because especially with Manifesto, um, the first version of that book that we wrote was 150,000 words. Yeah, Toby told me that. Did, like, yeah, Whoa. yeah. He loves that version. I mean, I love that version too, but um, but they just wouldn't budge. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't budge on it. So we had to hmm. pretty much rejigger that whole thing to fit with the size that they gave us. Wow. Which is, yeah, it's just so interesting. I'm sure there's like some data driving like the average consumer of a book's beyond this point. They don't buy it. I mean, who knows? Such a foreign concept to me is like not having enough words. Or, or I'm, I was always trying to like hit word counts <laughs> writing essays. They have that work against you in the opposite way is a totally foreign concept to me. Yeah. I think when, I mean, now we're probably more verbose than we are. Well, I also value <laughs> concision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yep, yep. But yeah, so, wow. So yours and Toby's started off kind of like bigger and you'd like Mm -hmm. kind of chisel away a lot of stuff, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, Toby, um, I think his vision for uh, Manifesto was very much like, let's get this, the Violet Hours training program down into like a manual kind of thing. And so the idea when we started, and Toby and I, uh, it took a long time to get our contract sorted out. So we didn't really start working until January of 2020. Um, and the idea was like, okay, well put me through the training program. 
right? Um, or at least that's where we should start because I, I don't know what it is. Um, wow. There is no like outline for the book. There is none of that. So, so how many shifts are you working at the ballot hour? <laughs> um, like George Plimpton stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I um, sat through... Uh, several sessions of what they call the syllabus and uh, I was like this is this works really well in person in, in human to human um, and clearly right because like their legacy as a bar and how many bartenders they've um, scattered around the world mm-hmm. bringing their talents to other places um, is incredible but um, it, it I didn't think it would work on the page at all so we basically had to refigure out okay, well, how does it, how does it look? Um, how do we structure it? And what I think it was also important to both of us that, you know, it wasn't, it was presented in a new way, right? Like we didn't, we wanted to add something to the conversation of cocktail books and not just, um, go blindly into it, just doing something that was kind of navel gazing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, eventually down the road, long story short, uh, our editor um, was working with us on a title. We were, I think at this point, we were in like the 150,000 word version of this, um, looking for a way, looking for a way, because we had like three books in one, Yeah. Uh, which where do we focus moving forward? How do we, like, what do we take out? Um, when, when we settled on the Bartender's Manifesto, I feel like that gave us more of a cleared roadmap forward. Um, okay, well, let's make this more about storytelling and philosophies and um all of those you know balance texture temperature narrative art comfort curiosity all of those things are baked into the violet art program um but the way we put them in the book i feel like you can pick up and just read one if you want to just read comfort and curiosity you can do that if you want to read it start to finish and do the whole program so to speak you can do that um but yeah that that was uh Again, like not a clear, not a clear roadmap at all. It was very like zigzaggy the entire way. And yeah, our book titles always after you've written the book. Um, yeah, at least with these, uh, in my experience, it has been. Yeah. And then when you sat down with Toby or Julia initially, do they state goals that they have other than like sell a trillion copies? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember Julia and I talking about that but toby and i definitely did in that first meeting like the first interview that i did with him we were at sleeping village and we had like three or four rounds of rosé and um (laughs) and uh i was like you know what what is your vision you know and um and i think it really was to just like to add something new to the conversation i think that was that was a driving force yeah um, for both of us I think that's the biggest challenge these days. Yeah. There are so many books written sure. um, about cocktails and it's just like, yeah, daunting to think of like the unique perspective that's going to make your book worth buying yeah. versus someone else's. Do you read your reviews? Um, yeah, I do. Um, I guess every once in a while. Yeah. Reviews and like peer reviews and you know, mm-hmm. Amazon reviews and things like that. Yeah. No, I do check in every once in a while. Um, anything I- funny you've encountered? Um, or has it all been... man, you know, the one that got like, I think the only one that's like ever gotten to me was recently it was for Mescal and I, I was looking through and this one guy gave it one star and I was like, why, you know, like I've got, I get pretty good reviews yeah. and, uh, and he was like, well, there's nothing in this book that you can't find with a quick Google on the internet. I was like, <laughs> okay. That's nice. 
was if like, that let's think the text of your book. You know, I was like, let's think about like I wrote this in 2016. There yeah, wasn't that, that much on the internet. Yeah. Like I had, I did most of my yeah, reporting in Mexico. You like, can't be like, well, back when I wrote it. Right. Exactly. Have... Yeah. Hmm. So that one was. Annoying. They should let authors respond. They should. I really wanted to respond. <laughs> That's a whole other. We could do a podcast about that alone. I would have been that asshole, though. I would have been like, "Listen, guy, <laughs> yeah, you exactly. don't even know." <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Geneva. Danny, what is Geneva? Well, Tim, I'm glad you asked. Geneva is a European spirit with a wide range of flavors and lots of personality. It always uses malt spirit and juniper and other botanicals, so some would place it somewhere between gin and whiskey. It can be floral and bright like gin or round and malty like whiskey. Whatever your preference, there's a Geneva out there for you. Even me? Even you, Tim. This campaign is financed with aid from the European Union. Was there anything that happened with these books other than obviously the length that you would change if you could, like if you could go back, things that you would do differently? Mm. I mean, that's a really good question. I think with Mezcal, um, my network of bartenders in Mexico wasn't as deep as it is now. Mm. And I really would have preferred featuring more cocktail recipes from bars in Mexico. Um, there are a lot from America um, in there. They're, they're mostly from America. Um, and I feel like now that just doesn't, it doesn't like feel the best to me. Yeah. It doesn't represent it yeah. as you would want yeah. it yeah. to be represented. So I think I would, I think I would change that. Um, I don't know. The other two, I just, I'm so proud of, and I think they came out so beautifully. Yeah. Were Julia and Toby stoked? I think so. Do you as talk to them like about it on a relatively frequent basis? Toby and I talk all the time. Okay. Um, we, uh, uh, you know, to, he likes to joke. I mean, he sends me jokes and, um, and I, I check in and I'm like, how are you, how are you feeling about, you know, cause that book came out in June. Um, so I am like, how are you it's feeling about yeah, it? You know, so. like, how's it going? And, and I check in with him after, like, I, I know he he's traveling and doing book signings. Um, and so I'll check in with him and be like, how's the crowd? You know, like who came out and, um, he's, he's so far, he's just been like, Oh, it's great. It's good. It's really good. And <laughs> so I haven't gotten like that like, deeper level. Um, I haven't yet. We did, um, um, an event together at Violet Hour um, back in June over James Beard weekend because it was the bar's 15th anniversary. And it was also like when that book came out, it was like two days later. So we did um, a signing and at that party, which was nice. And then we did a, a book signing at Tales too. Oh, cool. Yeah. How was Tales this year? It was good. It was good. Was um, it as chaotic as it has been pre-pandemic? I don't think so. Um, but I also didn't end up going to any parties. Like I, you know, I did some seminars and I had some events. I was on a panel. Um, uh, I, I would say the overall sentiment, like everyone I talked to had the same vibe, which was, you know, I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to overschedule myself. I'm not going to feel bad if I don't go to certain events. Yeah. You've been before, you know? Um, yeah, this was my ninth year, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's night and day compared to, you know, my early years of tales where it's like, oh my God, you have to do everything. 100%. Um, yeah, Tim, you got to go. Yeah. I'm going to be the scofflaw representative next year. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do some uh, guest bartending appearances at the parties. Yes. That's right. Just go through Toby's training via this <laughs> <laughs> with a Danny name tag. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, just read the book. Do time. you have a lot of other bar tenders reaching out to you now to write books with them? I've had a couple. Um, I've had a couple over the years, and it's funny because some of them, um, some of them are like super pumped. And I get really excited. And there was one actually that I, I had the idea and I took it to uh, a duo of bartenders who kind of worked in that realm. Um, and they were super excited. And we were putting the proposal together and, and then they just kind of disappeared. Hmm. Um, and then some other, a couple of the other guys, um, mostly guys um, for some reason. Um, Ego. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, they get super excited. And we have a really good chat. And it's like, okay, well, let's let's like see about putting a proposal together. And, and then it just falls off the radar. I think it's because people, um, I, I mean, writing a book sounds like a lot of fun. But it's a ton of work. It's an oh, enormous man. amount of work. But I mean, I, and in no way am I trying to criticize uh, Toby and Julia, but like based on what you're describing it seems like a lot of what i would think of as the hard work is falling on your shoulders i guess like obviously the a lot of the idea originates with them but like the skill of organizing their life's work into something you know palatable readable you know like to translate that into a book is really, I mean, yeah, but everyone has in, ideas. They put in the years of working behind the bar and the late nights and stuff. They paid their dues. No, of course That's, they paid yeah, their dues. But yeah, I'm not, mining I'm just, that and organizing into yeah, a book is a major Like, I guess the reason I mentioned that is you mentioned these other people who start off enthusiastic. And in my mind, mm-hmm. they like should remain real. enthusiastic because like for them, what's the, di- like, they're not the ones mm. distilling all their stuff into this book. That's yeah. what Emma's doing. I think doing. it depends, too. I think I think every every co-author is going to be different, too. So, like, while Julie and I had that long interview, essentially, excuse me. That's okay. Um, Toby, uh, Toby was very, very involved in the actual writing. Yeah, he told me yeah. he was, like, yeah, sending yeah. so much writing. It was crazy. There would be is days. Is a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> For me, it was great because I, I, I think the worst, um, like I mean, the most painful thing is not yeah. having enough and yeah. having to ask but You're also like a trained editor and... in many ways. Yeah. Your background yeah. that you spoke about before, like you're very good at taking away the unnecessary content. Yeah, and I think that is kind of what you get with me as a co-author is that I am a better editor than I am a writer. So it, it fits really well. Like writing for me is so painful, but like okay, Toby, you know, here's 10 pages of, um, brain dump from Toby and I just have to go through it. (laughs) This is a scary place. Um, a scary and wonderful place. (laughs) I love you, Toby. Um, you know, and sifting through it and, and finding the gems, right. And there'll be so many times in that process where I just be like, Oh my God, that line is so good. Like he's a brilliant mind, right. And a brilliant writer. Um, and so like, it was such a relief that I didn't have to do that you know like when i'm writing for myself it's just like first drafts are like pulling teeth i just can't stand it but i love editing yeah i'm the Uh, reverse yeah i'm the same way i I was a writing tutor in college and i would just i would help people organize their thoughts and if someone comes to you with something it's so much easier than sitting down with them and like trying to put together an outline that's why writing is hard for me is because i i'd much rather edit and getting wow sitting down and actually writing i was such a bad i mean in in college some creative writing courses remember we had two uh short fiction authors and they were husband and wife and the i forget who who was who but one of them was like wildly successful and the other one was like moderately successful and uh the one who was 
moderately successful was like, I think they had agreed was like a better writer, but the one who was wildly successful was like a better editor and was able to do so many rewrites at a clip that the other one just couldn't. Yeah. And I feel like I identify with that. It's so hard. I think we could be writing partners. (laughs) You write and I'll organize. I'll edit. Yeah. I mean, I can do the first draft and then I'm just like done. Uh I just, the task of going back through it is so daunting that I just like, I can't. Yeah, no, you guys would be. That's, I love that's that a good part. Pair. Yeah. yeah. All right, <laughs> yeah. cool. We'll take it's on done. the next book. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the projects you don't want off. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, how many uh, projects are coming, coming down the pipeline from you? I'm working on a co-author book right now. Okay. Um, started um, on that one last spring, um, and it was going to be due in November, but we just. Uh, you know, that happened with, um, manifesto too. I, um, you know, six months to, you cannot bring uh, your co-author on six months before a book's due. Mm. It's just not enough time. And yeah. now I know that I, I was very ambitious before and I was like, Oh yeah, it's easy. And with this one, especially I was like, yeah, I know what I'm doing now. You know, Are they local? um, not local. Um, but he's also a writer. Um, and so this one has been very different in that, like we're trying, like he's got several books out already. Hmm. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, well, what are his strengths? What are my strengths? How do we like find this balance? Um, whereas before it was like, well, I was working with people who, you know, I mean, Julia was not, she writes beautiful things and Toby writes beautiful things, but neither one of them are like a book authors, you know? Yeah. So it's very, very different. Um, so there's no release about the book you're currently writing or else you'd be telling us who this person was. Yeah, no, I've already pieced it together. I know who it is. I'll tell you later. (laughs) (laughs) So are you working with with that person's publisher this time because they already have books out? Uh, no, still uh, hired by uh, the author. Oh. Yeah, so basically as a co-author, I'm just a contract, I'm a contract hire with the author and it's kind of a funny thing because you'd think that I would be hired by the publisher, but Mm -hmm. um, especially because um, I think at least in the books that I've done, I've I've been in like a point of contact for so much um, in the editing as well in the, yeah. And in the, in the design and, you know, I helped with photos for Violet Hour too. And so like not, it's, it's kind of a strange relationship Hmm. between editor. And And then when you're a co-author, are you, do you have incentives on the back end as well? Or you're just like paid up front? Yeah. Flat fee. Okay. So far it's been a flat fee. Um, divided in whatever makes the most sense for the author because, um, you know, they're getting their payments in increments as well. But so it's like a forward or an advance rather. Um, Toby was yeah, explaining with... all the details of it and it <laughs> sounded very wild. Yeah. With, um, with Julia, um, I got paid half up front, half at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of similar with Toby. Sorry. Um, he was explaining his own. He wasn't oh, talking okay, about yeah, your yeah, yeah. own financial stuff, just yeah. his own stuff. Yeah. And I don't know what he had printouts of your bank. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was not, uh, he was not spilling the beans <laughs> on your stuff. He was just talking about just his own process in it. Yeah. And I didn't know how it worked, but I mean, it's a process of advances and yeah yes. and yeah with toby's it was it was multiple payments and with this one right now i get paid a little bit every month and then i'll get the rest at the end okay cool so and that works better for me right now anyway because um because i'm a freelancer now period um yeah. after leaving the magazine so and then um, that's are you nice. are you doing anything like on spec so to speak like in new books that aren't with co-authors yeah i really want to i'm like really desperate to do my own thing again um i've had some ideas um that like 
get wind in their sails and then die out a little bit and then a co-author thing will come up and then you know and it's it's just it's waves right now um so nothing like absolutely fixed um that i'm working on i've got two books um one I was talking about last summer that I'm, I'm still really interested in writing. I think maybe it's just going to be further down the line um, about like American spirits and specifically like independent craft distillers, but ones who are making spirits that are really strong expressions of their region. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like, cool. like um, West Coast gin, uh, you know, like Southwest gin. George type of stuff. Exactly. Or- Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, basically like what, you know, what makes a gin from New York different from one that's made in New Mexico, Attitude. Um, that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so as a freelance writer, what is your schedule? Like, do you, do you practice like specific office hours? Do you go to an office to write? Mm-hmm. How do you stay disciplined? And, yeah. and is it always, is it a rush before deadlines or what's, I feel like, um, so when I worked for, when I was the digital editor at Imbibe, um, I was I was remote because mm-hmm. um, their offices are in Portland, Oregon, um, and so I've been working remotely f- since 2014, okay. um, and I haven't really had a problem with it. Um, I have a little uh, my own office in the house, and I had uh, we had a two bedroom in Logan Square when we lived here, um, and so like we didn't have a guest bedroom. That second room was my office. Um, oh, yeah, I forgot I where did you move space. to. I'm living in Michigan. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not that far. And you're here for Riot Fest? Here for Riot Fest, yeah. Nice. Thank you for making the time. Yeah. Oh, no. Super stoked. Um, How's the cocktail scene in Michigan? Where where are you? (laughs) Um, uh, We're close to South Bend. Okay. Actually, we're right on the border. That's not bad. Like an hour, right? Yeah, it's like an hour and a half. Okay. uh, Without traffic. Um, Yeah. No, we've got we've got land out there. It was it was a pandemic move to get out and get some space, Um, and it's it's uh, treated us very well. Nice. Yeah. A lot of cocktail opportunity in Michigan. Damn. Oh, man, there, there really is. <laughs> Something to think there about. Really is. <laughs> it's not that far. Yeah, it's not Lots that of far. good fruit. Just commute home. Well, Lots we're in of the fruit, fruit belt, which I, I was not aware of that term until we moved to Michigan. Oh. Uh, we is live that like, right. Is virtue in that uh-huh. same belt? Yeah. Huh. Um, we live literally next door to an orchard, which is awesome because it's a U pick. So all cool. summer we go over there every other week. And do you just trespass or you pay them? Just, I, we haven't trespassed yet. <laughs> they pick in the um, middle of the night. <laughs> I'm kind of desperate. We pick to under like, cover of night. You know, if it just falls go over on its own, it's apple. fair game. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you shake the tree and it <laughs> yeah. falls, I mean. Yeah, no, I've behaved so far. Nice. And um, so you've had, you know, kind of a a pretty interesting route into writing independently and doing co-authoring and stuff like that what advice would you give to someone who's trying to Mm. to do the same thing yeah I mean I guess that kind of ties back to your question which is um discipline Mm -hmm. um you know I think the best thing that you can do is um is kind of give yourself some structure it you know it is like write as much as you can every day. Um, you know, uh, that's the only way you're going to get better. Um, and then send it to an Emma to pick yeah. up the gems. <laughs> and then I'll edit or it. Or Tim. <laughs> well, you, yeah, you said you journaled Hopefully a lot. Hopefully both of you get a lot of unsolicited writing from now on. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think maybe you find your voice in journaling. Like I've been reading, um, you know, David Sedaris published his, uh, his like, daily diary and it comes in two volumes and the first one he starts when he's like 18 and it's very 
it's it's a very different voice than the polished David Sedaris we're used to now. And it's interesting to see over time how he develops his voice and his writing gets better and better. And by the second book, it's like you're just reading essays out of the New Yorker. Nice. Hmm. That's so I, super I think, cool. yeah, I think there is something to practice. You just have to just have to write. Yeah. yeah, reading old writing for me is one of the most painful exercises. Yeah, really? I can I can endure. Yeah, it's reading like reading any of your writing stuff. is painful for me. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> That's why you're the editor, Tim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just send you all that rough stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, but especially like if you want to write a book, you know, because that is something people come and ask me a lot about now, um, and I don't usually feel helpful because these projects came to me. Um, but I think in hindsight, and and also what I'm carrying forward as I want to do my own books again, um, is to um, you know, to, to really focus on, on what it, on the one thing that you want to write about, um, and get published in that subject because publishers, especially the big ones, um, they only want to work with authors who have that quote unquote platform. They want you to be a proven somebody in, in the material. Yeah. So like, you know, if you, you've run a gin bar for Mm -hmm. a million years, good years, um, and you want to write a book on rum, well, I don't know that, (laughs) uh, and the editor is going to be cool with that, you know, but like Mm -hmm. if you, um, you know, use, and it's so much easier now than it was before with social media. I mean, just start an Instagram account and write everything you know about gin or, you know, something like that. But like make your voice heard in that space and do everything you can to stay heard in that space. Right. Panels and tails, that kind of stuff. Um, I think that that will help a publisher actually take your pitch more seriously. Yeah. I think they're also thinking about you driving your own sales too. If you have an audience, then Mm -hmm. that's going to equate to sales. Yeah. Cause I guess people are shopping as much for the author as they are the topic of the book. Mm -hmm. Sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. So I guess to that point, what is, um, like, what's the relationship like between, uh, like authenticity and cultural appropriation for something like that. Like you were talking about like mezcalerias or like, or cocktail recipes for mezcal that are from America. Mm-hmm. Like, does that make, like, I, I don't see that as inauthentic, but how, yeah. how do you, how do you balance that? Or I guess yeah. in your mind, how does that conversation take place? Yeah, that was really hard with mezcal, um, especially. Uh, and when they, my editor approached me about the book, even my first instinct was to say no, because that's not, I'm not from Mexico, (laughs) you know? And like, and Emma, and ultimately I decided that like, okay, but I can bring a journalist perspective to this, right? I can bring this like, um, objective bird's eye to this world. Um, and like translate it for an American audience. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think because, um, you know, I approached that in a respectful way and in like a very curious and, um, thoughtful way and being aware of that issue. Um, I think, I think that like worked out. I think think, think it does boil down to intention. Yeah. You know, I think anyone should be able to celebrate any culture as long as there's good intent. I don't think that it needs to be assumed nefarious or just because of ethnicity or background. Yeah. I think respect is a huge, huge part of it. And permission. But objectively even, you writing the book about mezcal helps the mezcal category, which in turn helps the people yeah. who make mezcal. Sure. So it's like if you want to argue about whether you're the perfect person to do it or not, like yeah. the benefit to the community is still there no matter who's writing that book. Um, so that's like 
kind of the frustrating tangents that we mm-hmm. find ourselves going down frequently, I feel. Yeah. And I think as a journalist too, you know, one of my, one of my primary goals with that book was, you know, to go, go straight to the source, right? Like I'm not going to write this without going down there and making sure that I, I'm talking to the right people, yeah. people who've done this for centuries, you know, and, and, and bringing their stories. Again, it was almost like being a co-author, right? Cause like my, my hope and my goal was to bring their stories to the page and yeah. get their voice front and center. And like, I, I have some, like a couple travel anecdotes in there about when I was down reporting for the book. But for me, the intention there was just to, um, was to help center the reader in contextually what was going on, right? Yeah. And it's, it's not a travelogue. Uh, I mean, there are books like that that are wonderful. Um, but with this one, I thought it was really important to, like, give the microphone, you know, to Graciela from Rio Monero and say, what is yeah. your story? You know, like, you tell, you tell the world what Mezcal is. Um, and I'm here to learn along with them. Yeah, that's cool. I think that's a good perspective to have. Um, through the research for that book, did you was there a favorite experience, your favorite uh, mezcal producer that you mm. visited? Oh man, I mean they were all wonderful. Um, I think going up to visit the uh, Vago uh, producers, Aquilino, um, who's now passed away, and Tiore, um, both like completely different parts of Oaxaca. One is like on the way out to the coast, and there's banana trees, and it's beautiful. And um, the other one is way up in the mountains, like harrowing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know the story. Like everyone's yeah. got that mezcal story about going up the dirt road, and mm-hmm. you look down, and there's a cliff, and you're like, oh my god, yeah. uh, I'm not wearing a seatbelt. And uh, yeah, both of those were just absolutely stunning. And and you know that was that was a while ago. And Vago, um, yeah, I'm sure that they've grown a lot by now, but. Um, the production was, it was just TRA and his, you know, and his palenque and that was it. And there were some puppies and, and they were <laughs> cute and, you know, but like, I just got this really unadulterated one-on-one with these guys, yeah. um, is, is absolutely priceless. Like you yeah. just, so many people don't get that. Yeah. As, um, as the popularity of Mezcal has grown over the past few years, I always wonder how people can keep up with demand and what they, what they're doing to increase production volume. Yeah. For, especially for these like artisanally made products, what, what are they doing? Or is that is there pressure there? Oh man, so much pressure, yeah. so so much pressure. And I think one of the biggest conversations in that space right now is that exact question, right? Is how do you how do you scale up without losing tradition? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, they're definitely planting a lot more agave now. Oh, it's crazy. Um, like, yeah, it's wild. The and efforts. There are some, through. yeah, there are some um, producers who I think are doing it in an interesting way. Um, a, some particular pr- production goes like this as well, um, like at Petron, and um, where they uh, they basically just make replica palenques. So instead of um, you know shifting from pre-industrial, um, you know the underground pits, the um, tahona crushing, um, instead of switching from those to like diffusers and autoclaves and mechanical shredders and stuff, mm-hmm. they're just, they'll, they'll build an, a second set. That's um, cool. yeah. So I think that is an in- really interesting, uh, way to like bridge that gap, um, make more without, um, fully. sacrificing flavor. Yeah. Without fully yeah. messing with it. Yeah. 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 And I guess it creates scarcity and drives prices up and, mm-hmm. You know, then it, all the had, good stuff, all the fun economical <laughs> stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I'm always saying there's special bottles that yeah. she saves for special occasions. Yeah. Yeah. I try not to drink too much. Yeah. 
for my liver too because it's all very high proof (laughs) (laughs) this episode of joiners is brought to you by stock manufacturing makers of fine hospitality workwear you obsess over the details in your space so why stop at your staff's uniforms stock has something for every aesthetic from fine dining to a corner cafe they've got you covered Choose from in-stock ready-to-wear options or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. All right, right, Emma, what's your death row meal? Yes. Okay, so I did cheat and listen to other uh, episodes, (laughs) so I was prepared. Um, Yeah, uh, okay, so I'm, I'm a bread fiend. So I really feel like, like the perfectly baked... And I mean, like, someone's grandma in the middle of France who's been baking bread every day her entire Mm. life, fresh out of the oven with, like, real butter, like, really, really good butter and, like, flaky sea salt. Mm. What kind of bread? Are we talking, like, sourdough, bull, or what are we talking about? I mean, I I hate to discriminate against breads. Okay. Um, I mean, in my vision, it was, like, a French French baguette, but only in that scenario. Because I feel like, you know, if it's not that French bread... French bread is, can be kind of boring and kind yeah, of sad. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I think that's a great answer. Do you Very have, elemental. Do you have a favorite bread shop outside of rural France? Well, I miss mm-hmm. I miss the boulangerie in Logan Square. Yeah, yeah. Um, we I used to go and get a baguette every every Sunday. And are you going to check out Loaf Lounge while you're in town? What's Loaf Lounge? Um, basically, uh, Ben Loosebader and his wife. So Ben from Giant, he and his wife opened this bakery called Loaf Lounge. It and, sounds uh, fancy. Yeah, no, and the I guess the chocolate cake from the bear is modeled on her chocolate okay. cake. So, all right. But I think they they do a really good job. If I may give them a plug, I went there for lunch yesterday. How was it? It was outstanding. I had the yeah. Shannon and I split the uh, veggie sandwich and the turkey sandwich. They're both awesome. The bread is unreal. Yeah, you should check oh, it out. Oh, perfect. Yes, I'm definitely loaf go. lounge. Yeah. Um. All right. What's the next one? All right. What's uh, outside of Scofflaw, Slippery Slope, <laughs> well, all of the Scofflaw group bars. What's your yeah. favorite bar? I mean, I had to throw in the obligatory Scofflaw. Um, <laughs> in Chicago? Uh, sure, in Chicago, in the country, what, what, yeah. whatever, in the world. I mean, I could go on and on and on yeah, um, if we open it past Chicago, so let's just keep it here for okay. now. Um, yeah, I mean, all my favorite bars are in Logan Square, so uh, Mysterio um, has a, such a special place in my heart, um, as does Billy Sunday. Um, uh, the OSB at Longman and Eagle is probably where I'm going after this. Nice. Um, yep. Cool. I mean, Great so many, answers. I mean, obviously also the Violet Hour and Kumiko too, but, yeah. um, there, yeah, it's a good handful. Cool. Nice. Uh, what is your favorite old school restaurant? Oh yeah. Okay. So I don't, I don't think I eat at old school restaurants really. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> I mean, I tried, I tried to, I really tried hard to think about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, Matt's El Rancho in Austin came to mind. It's like this old family owned Mexican What's joint. It called? Matt's El Rancho. Yeah. They do, um, Mexican, uh, martinis, which is like a really good. Oh yeah. Um, Opened scandalous. in 1952. Right, cool. yeah, yeah. That counts. Very cool. Okay. All right. Um, what is your favorite fast food restaurant? Fast food. So I think before moving to Michigan, I definitely would have said Taco Bell. Yeah. Um, that's always my go-to. Um, but now that I live in Michigan, I'm really like Culver's has been a discovery. Interesting. That I really enjoyed. It's the um, best. Would yeah. you say it's better than In-N-Out? <laughs> 
<laughs> this is one of those questions that's going to get me in trouble. No, it? no, I, I, I totally because it is. Tim was sniffing glue again uh, behind <laughs> the alley today. No, Culver's is the best fast food burger, hands down. There's I no, so. there's I mean, no substitute for that. Yeah, I disagree. And their uh, concrete mixers. The concrete. I mean, agree with the concrete. So good. Definitely better than an In-N-Out milkshake. And what's your order at Taco Bell? Oh, um, chicken quesadilla. Yeah. And then um, if I'm like really hungry, I'll also get. Um, and they don't even make these anymore, so I'm like that asshole. Uh, and except my husband's always driving, so I make him order it for me. Um, but you, you remember they used to just have gorditas? Like yeah. Now it's they'll make those for you. Well, they some places will. Yeah. You so, were mentioning yeah. that. One. I love yeah. a beef gordita supreme. Oh my god, I like the steak. But you can still they still have the supreme. cheesy gordita crunch. Exactly. So they so do have the bread. I'll settle for that. Yeah. But I don't need that extra like crispy shell and the cheese. Yeah, I just want the four thousand calories. Classic, the yeah. Cheese, yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It just gets in the way of the good <laughs> the stuff. The beef gordita supreme is yeah, a perfect keep it product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> that's why I go to Taco exactly. Bell. Exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, what's your go-to cocktail order? I think we already covered it with uh, Negronis and mm. G and T's. Yeah, I was gonna go uh, Negroni, and then I thought, you know what, I love even more than a Negroni is a Spagliato. Yeah, Spagliatos. What's and a spagliato? It's basically a Negroni, but instead of gin, you have sparkling wine. Mm-hmm. Oh. But some people do a spagliato with all three and then add sparkling wine. That's that's outrageous. Too much? Yeah. I, that's too much for that's me. It's like a Negroni Royale, technically. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm down um, with that. Spagliato was huge for a time. Is it still time. equal parts? So... I mean, yeah, there's a lot of debate about this. We (laughs) are, even our Americano isn't equal parts sweet vermouth and Campari. So our Spagliato would be like an ounce of sweet vermouth, three quarters Campari, and then that makes sense. Sparkling. My favorite one is at Longman, is there, they call it the Negroni di Aquila, but it's a Spagliato. Hmm. And it's made with Aperol and Punte Mace. Oh, that's nice. And I I have to say, like, that specific iteration is probably my favorite cocktail ever. Are we going there? Love it. Sounds like, yeah. we uh, all right. What trivia category would you dominate? Oh, um, oh, wow. Okay. This is going to be embarrassing. Um, is, is there a category for Grey's Anatomy? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah. I love the obscure. <laughs> so one. wait, but it's still going. Are you still watching it's, it? I am still How watching. How many seasons have they done? I, I came to it's it like late. like 20 seasons, isn't um, it? Yeah. I think this, I think this upcoming one is 19. Oh my wow. gosh. Yeah. I came way late to it. I didn't start watching it, um, until it was, well, I don't know, five or six seasons in. Hmm. I avoided the hype and then... So have you have you rewatched or are you just watching everything sequentially? I've, I've rewatched. Okay. Yeah. I started to it's, watch it. I could have gotten into it. Yeah. It felt like it's my I comfort had the food. I think 19 seasons. It's too late for me to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's never too late. I'll just keep rewatching. I do think Men. it's better when you watch it, like you know, in yeah, chunks. Because exactly. week to week, it's kind of. Yeah. Boring. I know what you're talking about. Having a comfort show is mm. is really nice. Yeah. That's Nobody like... knows this, though. This is like real groundbreaking insider intel okay. that I'm a little embarrassed to share. Share it's interesting. Oh, it's about when you come back yeah. to the show, we're going to have a little trivia session for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, if you could go back in time and give young Emma advice, mm. what would it be? Mm. Uh, I feel like the one of the biggest lessons that I've learned of of late is... Um, that it's okay to walk away from something that's good, but not great. Yeah. And I think I would have told myself that, like, don't forget that. Like this might seem, everyone can tell you that this is this awesome, great thing. And if it's just not a good fit for you, that's okay. That's really good. That's advice. great advice. Yeah. 
I like that and one. And on that note, That's I'm out. Heart. I'm done with the podcast. <laughs> Danny, it's been it's been good, but it hasn't been great. <laughs> All right, and last question. Yeah. Oh my god. What is something that bars or restaurants do that might annoy you? Mm. Okay, and so this is where I go from being like the embarrassing girl who watches Grey's Anatomy to like the ultra snob. Um, I uh, bars that don't have menus, so like that the ones the that QRs. that force you to do dealer's choice. Oh, 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 oh. like Attaboy. Yeah, I like Attaboy, and I was there in the spring, and I had one really, really great drink, yeah. and one that wasn't drinkable for me, and I and he didn't come back to check, and so I. Do you remember yeah. what cues you gave? Oh, undrinkable. <laughs> yeah. And don't come back. Or something terrible. Yeah. Um, no, I went to a bar in Montreal that. recently that was an all dealers choice. Yeah. Scenario. I just feel like but it was I, good for, for an industry person. I'm with you. Yeah. Right. I know what I like and I, and I can, but can't you just, I guess to be a contrarian for a second, could you not just say like Spagliato or whatever? Like, could you just oh, order yeah. what you wanted? I guess I do. In yeah. those circumstances, I, I feel You're like I try. You're just saying you want to see the creativity, but yeah. you don't want to not see a menu. Yeah. Because there's a wide range of things that you like and I, or don't yeah. like. Yeah, and I feel like uh, I do so much travel these days um, scouting bars, right? Yeah. So, like, I'm an academy chair for World's 50 Best for the Midwest. And so part of that is, like, I need to know all the bars. And um, I also travel around the world going yeah. to bars. and go back and, and kind of review. Yeah, so. and part of the, like, I think... I always try a classic. I always try, I want to try a house drink. And then if I'm still there, um, I might try a dealer's choice because I do want to see, like, can they execute? That's great. I think that's perfect. When I talked to, with Amy and when she was in yeah. here. Yeah, it was like, I mean, I'll vent again, but it was so frustrating when you'd read a write-up of a, of a bar or a restaurant and be like, amazing cocktail program. And it's like all they ever had was like two drinks from the menu, which doesn't yeah. really explain like the depth of the program. Right, exactly. But I like your strategy. I like that. Classic I feel like that's three, house yeah. DC. That's perfect. What, what's the criteria? What are you looking for when you're visiting these bars? Like, what what makes a great bar? Is it is it the menu? Is it the ambiance? Is it the crowd? The location? What are all the things that kind of go through your I mind? I think at this point, it really is. It is everything. It's all of it. I'm yeah. looking at the design. I'm looking at the lighting. I'm looking at the music. I'm looking at the menu. I'm looking at the hospitality. Um, you know, I am looking to see like can can they make me a Negroni? Or are they going to, like, what was the one I had once? It was like, oh, it was in Austin. Um, and I was I was very it pretentious. It. It, it was like Campari with, like, a muddled lemon. Hmm. And I think that was it. Like, it was, it was, it was a horrible. Like, super incomplete, yeah. And they were like, yeah, there wasn't, oh. Anyway. Um, yeah, those are yeah. kind of funny, though, when the, those, like, co- cocktails go horribly wrong. Yeah. Those are almost more, right? more it was, fun yeah. than a good cocktail. And, and I remember that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> more than I remember, like... Um, a truly memorable like, experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to love, like, ordering an Americano and getting the coffee drink. Oh, yes. That's how Which is me my too. fault. You were at Same. Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> Twist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, yeah. Emma, yeah. thank you so much for coming. Thank you, guys. On the Joiners Podcast. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. And that concludes our episode with Emma Jansen. Thank you for listening. And if you remember to, feel free to throw us a like and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also be sure to check out our Instagram at joinerspod for exclusive content, including cocktails from Danny Shapiro for each guest, as well as throwback photos of guests as well. 
This episode was edited by Matt Haddock, produced by Matt Haddock, loved by Matt Haddock, and the music was produced by Captain Cuts. See you next week.